Welcome to Book Shambles. You're listening to an abridged version of this episode. You can listen to the full uncut edition of this episode if you become a Patreon supporter of the show. And that's for as little as $1 a month via Patreon. And uh, you can support us. So just go to patreon.com forward slash. I still say forward slash. I'm I'm nearly 51. Thank you. Uh, Forward slash Book Shambles for more info and how to pledge. Hello. Welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here as usual. On today's episode, which we'll get to very shortly, we are joined by, at the time of recording last week and at the time of this podcast going out this week, the person who sits atop the Sunday Times bestsellers list for fiction, Matt Haig. Matt, uh, his new book, The Midnight Library, is out now through Canongate. Uh, We had Matt on the podcast uh, a few years ago, I think it was, just before Notes on a Nervous Planet came out one of his non-fiction books. So great to have him back on the show this week. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. As 2020 rolls on being 2020, uh, no live shows on the books for any of us, which means Patreon is more important than ever to uh, help us keep making stuff like Book Shambles and the Sunday Science Q&A Science Shambles live stream and all of the other events we have been doing most of them available for free for everyone because we appreciate that everyone uh, isn't in a position at the moment that they can spare a couple of quid a month but if you can patreon.com slash bookshambles is the place to go and you'll get extended editions of each and every episode for your subscription as well as lots of other bonus goodies and live streams like last night we did a Doctor Who show and tell special with Robin and Toby Haydock, who uh, made the show Moths Ate My Doctor Who Scarf, and Alan Lear, who is one of the presidents of the Doctor Who Appreciation Society. So that's available exclusively for Patreon supporters. So you'll get all the all the past uh, live streams and stuff we've done for Patreons are available on demand once you sign up as well. And the other way you can support the show or any of the podcasts and stuff we do at Cosmic Shambles is simply to subscribe to the podcast if you aren't already on whatever podcast platform you listen to. And especially on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, whatever you're using, rate the show five stars, leave a review on there. That really helps us out as well. Okay, on to this week's episode. Here is Robin and potentially Josie and Matt Haig. Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Uh, Josie, as you know, is both uh, elusive and uh, charismatic and also enigmatic as well. And therefore, she's not quite here yet. We're going to see what's happening. Um, Today, we're joined by someone who I'm trying to remember the last time. I think it was about two years ago, the last time I had them on. Uh, uh, And author who produces books that are uh, both beautiful and useful so he follows the rules of William Morris and uh, the necessities of, uh, of art and it is uh, Matt Haig. Hey Matt how are you? Hello Robin I'm pretty good actually today I feel I've got a, a, a weird and um, unfounded optimism for this week I don't know why but yes um, I'm feeling okay how are you? 
I think optimism is best when it's unfounded. I think if it is in any way secured to some kind of foundation, you will then eventually. But unfounded optimism, you know, these things where it just floats in the ether, you pick up on it, and then when it disappears, you think, well, it was never nailed to any particular event or true hope. That's a much better way of having optimism. Exactly. It's non-dependent on external reality. And yes, it's great. Well, just before Trent pressed the record button, I was just mentioning to you, there was a, there was a headline that I saw. Uh, we, we, we will talk about the book, I promise. Uh, it's the Midnight Library. It's available <laughs> now. There we go. We've done that. Um, but actually, there is a lot to talk about that. But because of someone who's written a lot about uh, anxiety and, uh, and, and mental health, I, there was a headline uh, about a couple of days before, or it might have even been today, actually, uh, I'm recording this, where it said that anxiety in teenagers there had been some research suggested had gone down during the pandemic and i thought this is quite an interesting thing and i, I just want to know your view on this which is some people i know who uh experience sometimes quite intense anxiety or or, or have general you know anxiety uh within them a lot of the time have found the pandemic an easier time because the number of things that you can be anxious about is, first of all, fewer. They're staying in. They're all of those different kind of social moments of, of anxiety have been rude. And also that there is something solid to be anxious about rather than all of those uncertainties, the, the anxiety that appears to come from nowhere. You go, ah, oh, so I just wondered how, how your experience, as you will probably be communicating with, I imagine, quite a few people who may be experiencing anxiety. Well, I think it's totally subjective and it seems that there's absolutely no clear um, pattern. I think people are having such um, a different experience. Even, even the same person is having so many different experiences. Like for me, I would say personally, it's been great and terrible for my mental health. And, you know, and it just depends which month it is, depends what I'm feeling, depends on that optimism or pessimism floating in there i i feel um what what i would say is actually i i felt like a lot of people actually coped quite well with the sort of clear total lockdown when everyone was doing the same thing um no one had any sort of fear of missing out we we kind of knew what the rules were for a little while there was a sense of us all being in it together i think what's harder and obviously we couldn't stay in that state forever. But I think what's harder is when everyone is on slightly different tracks and, uh, you know, we're, we're sort of rubbing up against each other. And even within families and friendships, people have different views of what they should be doing and how safe it is. And then, then you'll go onto Facebook and there'll be someone who is your best friend at primary school and they're sort of like full-on anti-mask, um, you know, David Icke, Bill Gates is evil, you know, stuff. And, 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 and there's all that craziness on top of it, isn't there? So I think it's interesting. I think, yes, I, I, what I really begrudged at the start of lockdown was the assumption and the use by government and business of mental health as as kind of as if it was a dead cert that is very clear what the narrative is in terms of mental health. This is absolutely terrible for mental health. What what kids and um, employees and everyone needs to do is get back to normal for mental health as if that as if normal as if 2019 was some sort of mental health utopia and our sort of like consumerist culture uh, and you know and uh, environmental damage was, was somehow the best we could actually do for our minds and it, it, it's it's nonsense of course I mean even the schools argument I, I totally think obviously we need to get the schools 
back you know all of that but this idea that school is automatically great and the best thing for every child it just seems like the narrative is always so singular on it and that, that that's frustrating and yeah it, it's slightly annoying when a government who has you know never does anything um proper for mental health actually uses mental health at any given opportunity as, as a means of um getting the economy going getting us all um back to normal which is uh you know along with its half price vouchers for nando's and stuff that's a bit annoying but yeah <laughs> <laughs> the uh no i think yes i i i, tell, I, I think it's always an interest that that bit where people are turned into a singular entity as you it's a bit like when people say you know that the, the the perfect family is of course the, the 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 proper family unit and then of course we all know people who within the family uh, and and that seems to be one of the the great difficulties doesn't it which is to say it's something we return to so many times on the show but not merely are we a multitude but the multitude of different personalities that are out there the the multitude of 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 different needs which are not needs that can be necessarily satisfied in any way by large organizations but at the same time should not then be used for you know commercialization monetization or alibis for uh, poor quality decision making no, indeed. That is very well put, Robin. And I, I, yeah, I, I feel like, I mean, it's a permanent frustration. I mean, I, I'm getting tired of even the sort of phrase mental health because it's just sort of, it, it becomes this kind of meaningless feel good thing, which just politicians love to say and, and pay lip service to. And there's really no service beyond that. It's just like, I, I, I don't know. And lockdown's been such a weird one. It's been such a weird one because it's almost like, mental health and physical health have been put in false opposition with each other like like if you're worried about catching a, a physical illness like um coronavirus covid then that that's somehow affecting your mental health and it's like like it's so it's so ridiculous because mental health and physical health are so interlinked obviously having covid19 would be bad for your mental health as well as your physical health so yeah it's just a bit frustrating. I, feel, I, feel, I genuinely feel like one day it will almost be like looking back on the four humours as sort of this quaint thing that we had this divide between mental health and physical health. Um, I, I know the science isn't totally there yet with mental health, so we don't actually fully um, understand it quite in quite uh, the way we should. So it's still partially in the dark ages. But I genuinely feel like we will come to a more sort of scientific, holistic understanding of, of minds and bodies, which will make everything we do now and talk about now in terms of mental health seem quite antiquated. Let's get on to the book, because this is a lovely book, because it, 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 its starting point, in my mind, is the fact that the, uh, I say lovely, but it's a lot in it. But the loveliness to me is that there is a library in limbo. You need a library card for limbo to some extent. This is the Midnight Library, which... Um, the the starting part i don't want to give away too much obviously about the book but it, it it starts off with someone's basic countdown to their decision to um take their own life um and then leads us into the the, the midnight library so i want to say when you're writing now because of, I suppose, to some extent, there is a change in people's minds of your, of, of of your positioning because of of uh, um, you know notes for a nervous planet, uh, uh, etc. That people look to you. Uh, do you feel sometimes, especially when you've you've got a book which is starting off with someone in uh, a, 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 a precarious state and and a state where they feel the level of hopelessness? 
Do you listen to a, a thing which says, oh, hang on a minute, I can't write this bit now because I need this book to be helpful as well? Does that come into your the way that you're writing a narrative? Well, I mean, I suppose I, 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 I'm seen as a mental health person because I wrote Reasons to Stay Alive. That was the first book I wrote, which was about mental health. And within that book, the very start, the very first sort of like fifth, I'd say, of that book could potentially have to come with a trigger warning because it's literally me on a cliff edge in Spain and, and suicidal thoughts and having a breakdown. And, and, and you know, it, it's, it would be trigger warning overload for, for that first section of the book. My thinking is you have to assume when you're writing something that a reader is going to read all of it. And, you know, you have, it's about the entirety. So my thinking is, if you're actually going to try and do something um, which has a little bit of use for people within it, or a little bit of, uh, you know, even within fiction, I don't think, you know, I think, I think there still can be some sort of practical purpose. I feel like you have to kind of um, show that some sort of authenticity or despair and, um yeah, I mean, the beginning, the start of Midnight Library, you know, it starts with a countdown to uh, suicidal intent, you know, and it literally starts with, you know, counting down the days and years before she decides to die. Um, that section shrank a lot in the edit. It was originally about 50 pages and now it's about 24 pages. Um, so that's partly an answer to your question. But I, I, I definitely felt it was important to start with that sense. And I, I worried about like each chapter because each chapter starts with however many hours she has before she dies, before she decides to die. And I thought, oh, is that, well, I thought, is that hammy? And I also thought, is that a bit, you know, um, milking something that's very serious. But then I remembered what depression feels like. Depression feels like that sort of ticking clock where you're sort of like expecting everything to be terrible and everything. And I just wanted to replicate that at the start. I mean, my, rather than any book, I mean, there were obviously literary influences too, but I, I had sort of It's a Wonderful Life as my touchstone. And It's a Wonderful Life, even though people remember it for the ending um, and the, the poster and James Stewart looking all happy and hugging his kids, It's a Wonderful Life is actually always a lot darker than, than you think it is. And it starts incredibly dark. Uh, there's you know, for for a film of was it forties or fifties? Um, you know, there's incredible um, themes that are covered in that film that that seem you know remarkable for the era it was done in terms of alcoholism and depression and suicide and all of that stuff. And you know, I don't know now in this environment whether you know. I'm sure some people will be sort of sensitive to that, but I, I, I'm a firm believer that you can tackle anything it's about what what why you're doing it what you're doing it where it ends up and i think hopefully by the time people have finished reading um the midnight library um it will yeah it won't make them feel depressed <laughs> no i don't i don't i don't think so and i think but you're right about wonderful life is such a uh it has some of the great tragic moments in it where the, the for instance when the pharmacist whose whose son has just died in war i think and he's not concentrating when he he gives out a prescription and it's basically poison i don't know if you remember that scene and, and there's a bit where the the pharmacist beats the james stewart young james stewart yes. character yeah very and, and then 
and it has some really hard so also the thing that i find most annoying about that film and it's a film that i do like a great deal is that stupid old man he employs who loses all the money and he's just an idiot and if he hadn't lost the money there would never have been those problems in the first place <laughs> You know that bit where you go, well, it turns out, I know there's an evil character in there, but also it was made easy by the old man leaving the bag of money. That's idiot. Yes. Anyway, let's not spoil Christmas now. <laughs> uh, we've got months to spoil Christmas yet. Yeah. The library is a lovely thing because, I mean, immediately the, the first thing that sprang to mind was, you know, a kind of uh, a Borges, you know, library. That, yes. that, that it's, a, it's, a, it's a lovely visual that, that, yes. that you've created. I've been having the, um, I've had to uh, do that. You know, Google does pronunciation. I'm always bad at my Borges, my Jorge Luis Borges pronunciation. So I, I was practicing that ahead of my, um, I'm, I'm always so paranoid about pronunciations. But yes, but yes, there's a lot of Borges in there. And um, yeah, um, li magical libraries always are, a, I love the concept of magical libraries. Um, but I, I also felt like linking it with parallel lives was quite, kind of quite neat because, you know, that's kind of like a metaphor for a library itself because a library is kind of a portal. And, and you know, we, why do we read? Why do we read fiction? You know, we are kind of entering other worlds as we do that and exploring, you know, within our one singular timeline that we're in it books offer that option to um step sideways into other people's lives and imagine ourselves within those lives so i feel like a library once i had that idea i thought yes libraries and parallel lives that that, that goes together and do you find i mean some of the books in that library quite early on you know the the, the, the book of regret is there or the book of regrets and are you, you know as you're writing that is that you know that dangerous bit where you go oh man now i'm getting my own you know that 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 because that's one of the problems is it where, where as you deal with ideas of guilt in this book as you deal with ideas of, of of you know what could have been the mistakes that i've made and in some ways finding your way through that um again it, it felt it's 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 a very uh visceral book at times like that and it attaches itself very quickly i i felt to reading it the the way that it pulls things out from your own mind the way that you you attach it both with the the person you're reading about but also that what it pulls out from you from your own personal experience if that makes sense yeah no definitely i mean for me writing it it was very much more i felt more probably even more than a non-fiction it felt like total like me going through a kind of cathartic therapy session uh trying you know some of those lives are similar to regrets I've had most aren't, most were totally fiction, but I suppose, you know, just little things. The fact that she's a musician and she regrets dropping out of a band. You know, I was, I, I played piano up till 13 and then I got suddenly self-conscious teenage boy about it and stopped doing music. And I, you know, that that's what an easy one to imagine. Oh, if only I have played, kept playing um, piano and going to Mrs. Peter's piano lessons, then that would have, um, you know, that would have been interesting to see where it ended up that way. But, you know, I think we all have that. And I feel like it's a very 21st century thing as well, because obviously we've often had regret isn't a new thing. But because we live in this internet age of continual comparison and um, continual information and we're continually seeing other people living other lives, even in lockdown year, we've, we've you know, we've, we've played that comparison game and, and social media itself thrives on that, you know. Um, there's a, 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 
I can't remember his name. You might know him. Uh, Roger Dunbar or someone who came up with Dunbar. Oh, Robin, Robin Dunbar. Yeah, what? Dunbar's number. Yeah. Yes. Well, he came, he came up with the idea about 150 is the ultimate sort of human number because, you know, in, in the Doomsday Book and in old Neolithic settlements and, you know, the average size of a community was 150 people. So within an average lifetime, the average human being would have been evolutionarily wired to, to know in any sort of meaningful sense, 150 people. And now, of course, um, you know, you can sit in bed and encounter 150 new people on Instagram or social media before you're even out of bed and having breakfast. So so we, 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 we're surrounded by far more people. And not only that, we're not surrounded by a cross-section of um, society anymore. We're surrounded by exceptional people. You know, people people on social media follow the most talented, the most beautiful, the richest, the most popular people in the world. And, you know, it ends up where you feel like normal living, it becomes a lack. And, you know, I'm not one of these snobs who goes on about reality TV, but one thing I do get frustrated about with reality TV is the fact that the narrative of most reality TV shows, not all, but a lot of reality TV, is that normal life is something to be saved from. You know, X Factor is a classic where you, you, you have the backstory of someone, I don't know, in Wakefield sitting on a bus and they've got a nan and this, that and the other, and like Simon Cowell could wave a wand and then they'd be transported into this shiny land of red carpets and stuff and uh, I feel like we're, we're continually encouraged to feel like having a normal life is, is a lack you know like an uh, inadequate you know and when when you see a brand newborn baby I'm being really whimsical and soppy now but when you see a brand newborn baby no one thinks about that newborn baby in terms of what they haven't got you know you see that as a complete um, fullness of human worth and value and yet as we go out through education systems and society and consumerism and everything we're just encouraged to think of what uh, our, our lives in terms of negative terms in terms of what we, we lack and so I try uh, I suppose if I try and do anything in this book it's trying to inject a bit of counterbalance to that there is also that as you said that magic wand in wakefield that then you get the stardom but there is that other side which, which is i always think it's from a film in uh, called cinemania about these it, it, it's a documentary about people who are huge film fans go, go i mean um to to the point where it's actually an issue it's 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 uh and and they go and see every single film in new york every single one that comes out this was made about 15 years ago and um, one of the guys one of the smartest people in the kind of film says the problem is he says what i i love about films is it freeze there's a freeze frame uh, you get the person you wanted, you get that moment, you tell the person who's been evil all the time, you kind of shove them away, punch the air, freeze frame, simple minds or whatever. He said, but of course then, that freeze frame, then you then you have to get home afterwards and then actually the subways. He said, and so the reality, the film stops yeah. at the peak. And it's yeah. fame, you know, your piano playing, you think, do you know what, by the age of 24, I could have been one of the, you know, imagine the bands I've been. And at the age of 27, you're annoyed at being dropped by your record label. And at the age of 30, you're playing yeah. some pubs in a yeah. cupboard. You're doing well, and that's the bit, isn't it? Which is, I think, very often a lot of media, you you get the freeze frame shot of of Butch this and is I, I saw Butch. I showed my kids Butch and Sundance. That's the ultimate freeze frame at the end when they're literally in the act of dying, but they've got smiles on their faces and they're going out. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I get what you're saying about the freeze frame. This is true. But um, yeah, but I feel I feel like 
I feel like the solution and the problem is the same thing, isn't it? It's uncertainty. Life is like full of uncertainty and quantum physics encourages us to, to have a sort of um, non-probabilistic sort of sense of the universe. And, and, and uncertainty is often used in mental health terms. Like people, people get to the root of anxiety and they say it's down to uncertainty. We, we can't stand uncertainty. And actually uncertainty, you know, that's how we frame uncertainty. But uncertainty is also hope you know uh if 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 we've, we know there's some bad date in the calendar that we're dreading uncertainty about that gives us hope you know we might know something terrible is going to happen but we don't know quite how we're going to react to it we don't know quite what the outcome might be and that uncertainty is actually a positive thing so i i, I think you know you know yes there's no happy endings there's no permanent endings but kind of like if we learn to brace embrace sorry uncertainty then um we can get a bit more Buddhist about it. I've been reading a lot of Buddhism. I'm, I'm definitely still an atheist, but I do kind of like a lot of Buddhist ideas. Um, didn't Einstein say something about Buddhism being the only compatible religion with science or something? I think so. And, and there's a book called When Things Fall Apart by um, Pima Shudron, which has helped me through um, lockdown year. Um, and it's got a, a, it's, it's got the most sort of nauseating um, cover from the 90s, which is like the sums up the very worst of self-help um, with the, you know, pastel shades and all of that. But inside, there's a very personal very honest, authentic account about grief and um, divorce and, and, and things like that and how Buddhism helped her. And actually, at the heart of it, it is just about accepting uncertainty and the way things connect, the way joy and despair are kind of, you know, part of each other. And you kind of can't... And we, we get a lot of pain in life from trying to avoid pain. And we once you sort of accept suffering as part of parcel of um, life in the universe, then we'd avoid a lot of our problems and our addictions and various things which are caused by us continually um, trying to stop pain. And that feels like a bit of a tangent, Robin. I went on it a doesn't, bit uh, of You know this, what? I think it could be fair to be said that whatever limited career I've had uh, <coughs> has never been anti-tangential. Uh, <laughs> yes. I would say that's... Uh... Sorry to interrupt your podcast, but I just quickly wanted to let you know about the thing, which is that Book Shambles and the Cosmic Shambles Network exist thanks to generous pledges of our listeners on Patreon. If you want to support the podcast and what we do, tiers start at just $1 a month, and you'll get all sorts of goodies thrown in. So go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Libraries. So it is a library. Do you have a... Uh... When when you're writing about library, is there a, is there a first library that you go back to? Do you have a uh, mine's Chorleywood Library? Uh, well, I do have a library I love. It's nothing like the Midnight Library. Uh, you know, I, I saw the sort of Midnight Library as a sort of classics, but but also surreal, kind of infinite, um, cavernous, Borgesian kind of library. Um, the library that means a lot to me was the library in. Um, Newark on Trent, where I grew up, which was right smack bang in the heart of town. It was built in the 1980s. I can remember when it was first arrived. Newark on Trent, um, town of like what 40,000 population in Nottinghamshire. It's not well, certainly in the 1980s, it didn't have anything. I mean, it literally didn't have anything. It didn't. It had a record shop. I think it had a video store, but it didn't have a cinema. It didn't have any really good bookshops. It didn't have. It, it was culturally kind of a wasteland 
and yet it had this gleaming sort of greenhouse-like glass library right in the heart of it, in, in the middle of one of its parks. And um, my parents both worked quite late. Um, my mum was a uh, head teacher or deputy head teacher at that time. My dad commuted to London. He was an architect. And they were back late. So after school, I'd just sort of go and sit and hang out in the library almost every night, not necessarily reading, you know, doing homework, just time wasting or whatever. And, um, you know, that's where I sort of got into um, books that weren't being prescribed to me by school. So you James Herbert, you Stephen King's, all of that stuff. Um, and yeah, now I, I suppose it's that it's that place and I, I I think what I love about libraries isn't so much about the books you know what I like about libraries is them as a space um that you know because we don't have that many spaces in our modern 21st century world which um like us for us you know then a, a library doesn't like you for the money you're going to spend in it it's almost like a secular church where it's just a space where you can go and be yourself and we don't really have many of those certainly not indoor spaces um left and so you know especially as they're under threat i thought you know it's probably a good time to write a novel with the word library in the title and you know pay tribute to that even if this is a totally infinite and non-realistic library i think you're right about that library you know that that thing where sometimes the anti-library people i was always annoyed that terry dreary i think who is is it terry dreary who wrote horrible histories yeah. very disappointed with his uh anti-library uh, which is it's presumed, as you said, it's just a place where people go to get books and can't people get them from other places now, blah, 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 blah. And you go, well, one, one, first of all, very often it's where the computers are, where yeah. people who may not actually have the laptops that we have and that those are. Two, when I see things like the Summer Reading Challenge, you know, that goes on every year. And I think of all the different sticker books that I've got from my son for year after year that he's done, where you know all the kids gather together and they're going through the kids' section of the library. What are they going to read? I can't remember. I think it's like six books you have to try and read over the summer, five or six books. Um, and yeah, then you get your stickers and it all. Yeah. And so that's this kind of celebration. It's not just the library itself, but there's an event going on there and all of the different things that go on with people meeting. And there's a beautiful library. I don't know if you've ever been to the Harris Library, uh, which is in Preston. No. And it's one of those ones where you go, oh, this was one of those great acts of altruism. You know, I've made a lot of money from whatever it might have been. You know, I'm going to build a great big library and there's a Foucault's pendulum in the middle of it. And there's an art gallery with bits and pieces upstairs. And I think there's, uh, you know, some Egyptology as well. There's been, you know, all of this. It's like, what have we got in the town? Stick that there. And there was that bloke who went to Egypt. Yeah, he's got that. Stick that in there. And um, and it is. And when, when I've, whenever I visited there. You just see so many different people who are there, who and and different, you know, quite often different uh, charity organisations and and refugees yeah. and old people. And I think that's the bit that when you see people arguing against libraries, they talk about it as just a place where you go to borrow a book and then you leave. Yeah, and they're most important in places where they are so essential to the community. And yeah, no, I I, I was going to say something else then. I, I forgot. I had a really good point, Robin. It was very good, but um, it will come back to me. But uh, yes, like, yeah, uh, I, 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 to I totally agree. And uh, yeah, well, for instance, they don't say it about restaurants, do they? They don't say, oh, we have to close down restaurants because you can now order your food over the internet. Or <laughs> you know, we, we, we say it about libraries, but uh, uh, you know, so 
almost everything. We never have to leave our house ever, do we now, because of the internet? So you can, the argument against libraries because we can, because of, I don't know, Amazon or the internet is just ridiculous. It's just, it, it, it makes no sense. It's like, you might as well say, well, we'll just give up on everything in the real world. We'll give up on town centres completely. We'll give up on community. And I think, feel like this year, we've all been reminded of how important it is, you know, having having community. And yeah, absolutely. When I've, when I've done, um, I've done a few book tours around um, libraries around the country and you go to the northeastern places where, where they've been having to have, um, libraries closed because of budget cuts and stuff that's the places you need libraries and without libraries you would have a more illiterate population you'd have people not being able to access um literature in the same way they don't they don't have uh, they're not living next door to a waterstones or something you know and you've got the library right there so yeah it's 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 also for, for human beings called librarians within a library who who actually can help you with stuff not just finding books but help you online with stuff and help your courses and yeah it's that idea of community i think like if you don't value libraries you don't value um community itself because we don't really have many spaces like that and i do find a you know the librarians that i meet they love books so much and you can see that they will be able to you know uh infect other people with that uh yeah that celebration of books and the written word and uh which reminds me julie if you're listening to this i promise we will do a book shambles with some librarians i'm sorry we haven't done it yet julie um I wanted to ask as well about what you've been reading. You, you, you mentioned about when things fall apart over the last, uh, what's it, five or six months now? Because um, you, I, I, this book was finished just before lockdown, as you said, the dedication, uh, yes. which is dedicated to uh, the the care and health workers. Uh, I think that's right. I hope I've got the health workers and care workers. Um, yeah. Uh, but have you has this been a time where you would normally have been doing a lot of reading anyway? You would have been kind of immersing yourself in because you don't have to immediately hit your own deadline. Um, yes, uh, I, I think so. But I do. I have been reading more, I feel, than normal, because in recent years, it sounds terrible for a writer to admit this. I mean, I, I do always read, but. Uh, I've almost had a, like a guilt sometimes taking time off to just sort of read and do nothing and absorb. And it's like, it's so ridiculous because obviously uh, reading is a writer's fuel and it's, it's the other side of the relationship. And I, I, I had this, you know, I'd say all through 2019, I had this ridiculous feeling of guilt if I wasn't working or wasn't actually tapping away on a keyboard. And um, this year I, I've really sort of found myself again and sort of got, back into just sitting on a sofa and reading and reflecting and reading stuff I want to read rather than reading stuff I think will be useful for a book or reading something for research purposes actually reading you know proper reading because I answer so I've been reading all sorts of stuff I was reading um biographies um I've uh read um Hollywood biographies. David Niven. I read a book written by. Oh, David. you want the moon to balloon and bring on the empty horses? Those, yeah. Yes, love all. That. I love old Hollywood, especially now. You know, with with Trump's America, clear. You know that that idea of old America just seems so nostalgic to me, and such a world that just is not there anymore and will never be there anymore. Um, yeah, uh, so I, I find memoir and biographies um, good. You know, during the whole George Floyd thing, I was I was getting up to speed with books on racism and all of that stuff, which I feel 
as privileged white male person, I've been really bad at, you know, I've, I've been trying to, as they say, decolonize my bookshelves a bit. And um, yeah, I've been reading all kinds of stuff, lots of nonfiction, really. I haven't read much fiction. I'd say that's what I haven't been reading, which is strange because we've never need, had a year where you need to escape into fiction more. But yeah, also Buddhism, getting quite into Buddhism. I'm not going to go... I'm not going the full kind of Russell Brands, but I, I am, I am <laughs> kind of interested in, you know, the ideas within it. But anyway. Yeah. Well, that's I mean, that's an interesting thing, is it, which is it, in a lot of books uh, that may well be seen as religious books. It doesn't necessarily mean that the philosophical ideas are no. entirely null and void, it's but it may be that there is a point where you go. But I can't take that next step, nor indeed do I want to. But it doesn't mean who is it? Is it is his name Idris Shah? Uh who wrote a lot about Sufism uh, and the Sufi oh. re religion. And I, I was watching this on, on YouTube. There's this wonderful series of um, that went on for years, apparently, of um, a BBC documentary called One Pair of Eyes. And there's one with Marty Feldman talking about comedy, which is magnificent. And uh, there's one with an artist called Cecil Collins, who I'd never even heard of, who's kind of uh, in the, in that slightly mythic and magical tradition of someone like William Blake. I immediately thought Stuart Lee must be a fan, but he wasn't. We didn't know about him, which surprised me enormously because it very much ticked the boxes of, of, of him. Um, and there's this one called uh, Dreamwalking, which is by Ezra Shah, which is all about it's it's about all the things we still talk about now 50 years ago which is if once someone's made their mind up it doesn't matter what the evidence that's given to them uh they will go well i don't believe that or no i wish to believe it and it's and it's got some lovely stuff in it but again as i, I was reading some of his work and i think well it's attached to religion yeah but it doesn't mean that i have to consider everything you know i i can still find interesting philosophical thoughts there i think that's a problem sometimes which is religion did manage to uh ring fence quite a lot of interesting things which then means that within yeah. science and and people who wish to be logical and rational they can go i don't want that element of ritual because it might mean that there's god there and you go no 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 you can still have your ritual and you can still do these things it you don't have to immediately say oh that must mean that i believe in a load of old nonsense <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. And especially when, like, what I liked about Pima Chodron's writing is is, is that it, it's almost like the opposite of faith. It's almost like a, a belief in uncertainty. Is is I, I like that. I like anything that's just sort of like open rather than closed. And I, I, what puts me off most religion is, is is that sense of closed or that sense of where where it's so circular that 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 you know doubt becomes another kind of confirmation or you know it, it, that, that you can't really access it or ar argue with it or reason with it whereas buddhism it seems like everything's open and it, it does seem like a kind of um a kind of science before science it, can, it kind of feels like it's just about trying to understand and interpret the world and nature and join things together and all of that and i'm into that and it's not so much about a god in the sky you know not, yeah so so I'm, I, I'm quite open to that stuff it doesn't give me a rash like uh, certain um religious writings do i will mention by the way the uh of uh, well you've probably got this book because it's your publisher canongate but uh richard holloway has a new uh book out and richard do, do you read richard's stuff at all i do and i love richard we did an event together at edinburgh book festival uh well i've done two events together actually he I, he's one of my heroes i, I love richard I, I i've forgotten the name of his memoir what was his memoir um, oh leaving alexandria leaving alexandria yeah great that's what i've read of his but um yeah i'm looking forward to the new one
yeah, the new one's got loads of lovely things in it, and he's such an interesting for the, for those of you who might not listen to the show. Basically, he is uh, he's the former Bishop of Edinburgh, but uh, eventually, kind of, he's now in a position where uh, I suppose a, 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 he he's uh, practicing faithless, an uh, agnostic. Yes. But he practices his. Uh, it, it, but it's a, it's a really interesting. Uh, Levi Alexander is 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 fantastic. I recommend his books. Um, Midnight Library, which say now the Midnight Library is out now, and uh, I think it's uh, it's top top the Sunday Times, hasn't it? it was done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's straight in at number one, which was my first time for a novel. I've never had that, so that's um, lovely. How to stop time never hit the top spot. So um, yes, I feel very. Yeah, it feels very exciting because I genuinely didn't know with this book. I thought people were going to say, oh, it's um, predictable or too derivative or this, that and the other. But you just write what you you write. And then, yeah, it seems to be going down very nicely. So that's good. Well, thanks very much. I'll just give my recommendation, by the way. It's just arrived in the post. Uh, The Brood. I'm a huge fan of David Cronenberg. And this is a really big book this is a midnight movie monographs who i love they've done books about tommy and they've done books about twin peaks fire walk with me and theater of blood and this is by stephen r uh, bissett who uh also did the swamp thing books with alan moore uh and he's written this huge book about david cronenberg's the brood and i haven't started it yet but i'm that that is when i don't have to write my own book uh i'm going to be reading that because i think it's gonna be fantastic um matt one day we'll see each other in a real world if a real yeah. world exists. As we know, that's also a problem of physics. Uh, uh, drone the other day as well. I love video drone. Oh, of, that's um, great. So, I mean, and those special effects, even though they are dated, they are so powerful still. It's just like body horror stuff. But he was so imaginative with the sort of like videos inserted into bodies and all of that stuff. It's just, yeah, love it. He's the one person of, of all the people I tried to interview for my book, and I managed to get Brian Eno and Jane Goodall and and uh, and, and and the astronauts that I was after. But I wrote to David Cronenberg's oh. agent on three occasions, and I received no reply whatsoever. He was the only because I really thought, and the chapter of biology, I thought, what am I lacking? I am lacking David Cronenberg, <laughs> and I would love to have got him for that. Um, thanks so much, Matt. Thank and, you, uh, Rob. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Trent, uh, as, as normal, for, uh, um, for, for producing this. Uh, Josie, you have created a very, uh, again, a very Samuel Beckett moment for us. We imagined that at any moment you would come around the corner, but, but we didn't see you today. But Josie will be back soon. So that's Josie and Robin's book, Shambles. Please support us via Patreon if you can. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you to our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to support us, to subscribe, like, rate, review, all those things on Apple Podcasts and beyond. Matt's book, The Midnight Library, is out now. Get that from your favourite independent bookshop online. Or if you can safely go to one of the independent bookshops that is now open up, pop on a mask and go and get it there and then wipe it down properly when you get home. Back next week with another new episode, which we've already recorded with Robin and Josie, and a special guest to be revealed soon. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robin's Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Mm